several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow I am particularly thrilled to be doing this first story because it takes me back to a very important time in my life, my years of going to college in the storied community of Malibu, California, known for actors, actresses, lots of suntanned, perfect bodies, but only recently has become known also for wine. And we are very privileged to have on the line with us today somebody who is is deeply immersed in the Malibu wine scene. It's Elliot Dolan, who not only is a winemaker, but also a music maker with a very interesting past. And if you know me, I love to talk about the relationship between wine and music. So particularly glad to have Elliot on the line with us now. Elliot, what's going on? Hi, how are you? I am doing great, and I'm trying to think of the last time I was in Malibu, and it's been a while. i got to be honest with you. I finally gave up on Malibu because on a holiday like 4th of July, it takes four hours to get home. You just go, wait, there's got to be a better way. Well, that's brutal. That's the reason to live here, though, because you don't have to drive to get here. Well, that's right. As long as you never leave, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Try to make that a practice. How long have you been there? Oh, gosh. um, That's 17 years, actually. Oh, that's that's a pretty long time. So when you went to Malibu, did you ever dream that you were going to be in the winemaking business? No. No? Not at all. Particularly because uh, our first home in Malibu that we uh, moved into in 1998 had very limited yard area. So uh, there wasn't even a thought of planting a vineyard. So let's talk, first of all, about the geography of Malibu. I would think that most people listening around the country would be familiar, at least from stories and news stories, what have you, about places like the Malibu Colony, which is down there on the beach. But on the other side of the Pacific Coast Highway are the beautiful Santa Monica Mountains, and that really is where all the wine country is at, is it not? Yes. Okay, so give us a little geography lesson and explain to us in terms we can understand the Malibu AVA and what the general size of it is now and what is likely going to be the size, uh, you know, five years from now, ten years from now, or has everything just stopped? Well, um, I'll start with a little description of the geography. We're in a uh, situation where the mountains sort of meet the ocean, not unlike, you know, certain parts of Hawaii, which I always find very beautiful. And uh, the beach, obviously, we have no vineyards along the beach. But just across Pacific Coast Highway, which runs the length of the city of Malibu along the ocean, begins the the foothills of the Santa Monica Mountains, 
we're, oh gosh, maybe two miles in from the beach off of uh, Point Doom, but, uh, and we're at a 400-foot elevation, but from where we are, the elevation continues as you go north from the beach into the Santa Monica Mountains, you reach an elevation. Uh, some of the vineyards actually are above 2,000 feet. So there's a, there's a pretty big differential in elevation and microclimates in the varietals that we're growing in different parts of the AVA itself. The AVA is 47 miles long by about eight miles deep. Is that right? 47 miles. So where does it start? Of course, the city of Santa Monica, which most people are, I think, familiar with, is kind of the next major city down from Malibu. Not that I would call Malibu a major city. So how far from the city of Santa Monica does the Malibu AVA begin? And then how far does it extend? I guess it probably goes all the way into Ventura County, right? It does. It spans both Los Angeles and Ventura counties. And it starts, pretty much starts at a thoroughfare called Topanga Canyon, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's, it's one of the few, actually, canyons that uh, allows you to traverse the mountains from the ocean over into the San Fernando Valley. Right. And that's, I don't know, maybe eight miles west of the city of Santa Monica itself. That's where the AVA starts, and then it extends west. And at, at this point, the, uh, the coastline runs east to west. Uh, it extends west all the way out to Ventura County in an area just shy of Oxnard, California. Wow. And, and, so, and uh, so that's 47 miles. Wow. Yeah. I used to bicycle that. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice, beautiful drive, and I'm sure it's a great bicycle trip. But And then it extends eight miles north, if you will, over uh, into parts of the uh, Conejo and San Fernando Valleys. Wow. Now, how many vineyards are there in the Malibu AVA, first of all? And what generally is the average size of those parcels? And I guess also, you know, how many wineries are we talking about? Well, we have, at last count, approximately 52 vineyards. Wow. In the ABA, primarily smaller. Now, of course, there's the you know the, the larger vineyards such as uh, Simler, uh, Rosenthal. I think Rosenthal is uh, 30 acres, but most of us are you know under two acres. Wow. And I guess you could be bigger if you wanted to be. Or I know that there's been a lot of politics going on where the Malibu ABA is concerned, and you've had I guess a lot of resistance from the county of Los Angeles, right? Well, we have, and it's interesting. Although we we call it the Malibu Coast ABA, it's it's really within several different governmental jurisdictions. In our case, we are in within the jurisdiction of the actual city of Malibu, which really represents you know a, a smaller portion of the Malibu Coast ABA. The Malibu Coast ABA encompasses other municipalities such as Calabasas and also an area in the Santa Monica Mountains that's what we call unincorporated Los Angeles County, which is governed directly by the county. It's not part of any particular city. So within the city of Malibu, we're regulated by what we call the Malibu Local Coastal Plan, and that has not changed. What has changed is the treatment within Los Angeles County of the area of Santa Monica Mountains that is in what is called the coastal zone, which is regulated ultimately by the state of California. And then there's the area of Los Angeles County that's outside of the coastal zone, but still within the jurisdiction. About a year ago, the county passed a local coastal plan that affected the coastal zone of the Santa Monica Mountains. And that basically was tantamount to a ban on vineyards. This year, they extended their reach into called the north area of L.A. County in the mountains. And I'm getting kind of technical here, but 
a separate area governed by the county that's now subject to a new set of zoning restrictions that haven't actually banned vineyards, but they've imposed a very stringent set of conditions and regulations under which new vineyards can be planted or existing vineyards can be expanded. And uh, after five years, existing vineyards will have to conform to. What troubles me, I guess, about what I have heard about what's going on with the Malibu AVA is having been a student at Pepperdine there years ago and lived through multiple horrific fires in that area that at times would take down hundreds of homes at a time. It just seems to me that having vineyards is a much better use of land and a much safer purpose for that land than having a bunch of houses on the hillside. What is the objection and why would anybody be concerned about there being vineyards incorporated amongst the chaparral in Malibu? Let me start by saying that the irony of all of this, other than the irony of having a new AVA where vineyards become banned, the irony of all of this is that the Santa Monica Mountains are zoned specifically for agricultural use. Yes, yes. And for whatever reason, vineyards have been singled out as the culprit. For instance, if you're concerned about water usage, you can plant avocado trees that use, you know, multiple times the amount of water that vineyards do. <laughs> yeah. In fact, in, in vineyard management, our objective is to use as little water as possible, ideally no water. I've been saying this to everybody. You know what? The most conscientious people in the world of agriculture are grape growers. They, <laughs> they bend over backwards to be sustainable, to be low impact, and to be good keepers of the land. And it just, it always surprises me when vineyards get singled out. The only time I've ever seen a vineyard on fire, by the way, is in the movie Walk in the Clouds. <laughs> Remember that movie? <laughs> <laughs> with Kenal Reeves holding up the sacred grapevine and saying, we will rebuild it. But I've uh, never actually seen grapevines burn. I don't think it can well, burn. Well, as a matter of fact, that brings up another interesting point, which is that uh, at one point, the fire department actually recommended vineyards as a great fire break. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, for many reasons, you know, there's so many pluses. Now, the environmentalists and the people at the county that have you know, embarked on this program are convinced that, A, the vineyards are using precious water that shouldn't be used, and B, that there is runoff, you know, where pesticides and other chemicals and things would run off and, you know, create environmental damage. Uh, they're concerned about the aesthetics. They think that the native chaparral should be left intact and that vineyards disrupt the scenery in the Santa Monica Mountains. Okay, I want to meet the person who thinks that chaparral is prettier than vineyards. <laughs> well, just... just come on down to one of these Board of Supervisors <laughs> meetings and you'll, you'll meet I'm a gonna get. Oh, God, I'm going to get letters. I'm going to get terrible letters. Anyway, we're talking to Elliot Dolan. He is the founder of Dolan Estate. Stars in Malibu? Absolutely. Beach babes in Malibu? Absolutely. But vineyards in Malibu? Yes, absolutely. I guess uh, more than 50 of them. And uh, we're going to continue our conversation. Elliot, can you stay with me for a second? Because I want to talk about, I want to not just talk about the Malibu AVA, but I want to talk about how a a well-known guitar player winds up growing grapes and making wine. Can we do that? Absolutely. All right. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters. Stay with us and break out your Malibu Barbie for our next conversation with Elliot Dolan of Dolan Estate in Malibu, California. We like to talk about wine. The hottest gift for wine enthusiasts is the next generation of the most amazing wine accessory ever created. Whether it's a gift for the wine lover in your life or a reward for yourself, nothing can improve wine enjoyment like the astounding Corvin Model 2, which allows wine to be poured from an unopened bottle. 
find out why the Corvin Model 2 is so revolutionary at GrapeEncounters.com. We have the new Corvins in stock at Grape Like the Fruit Encounters like CloseEncounters.com. Grape Encounters Radio is based in Atascadero, California for good reason. It's the heart of the Central Coast wine country and the perfect home base for endless adventures. Atascadero is friendly, affordable, and offers unparalleled access to world-class equestrian ranches, bicycle trails, hiking, breathtaking beaches, cutting-edge culinary experiences, and endless wine country adventures. Learn more about Atascadero, the gateway to good times, at visitatascadero.com. Every year at this time, more and more people discover the amazing Portuguese dessert wines meticulously handcrafted by Manzanita Manor. They're called Two Horse because these incomparable wines are made from grapes grown in a remote vineyard that's actually plowed by real horses, not simply horsepower. Made from the finest Portuguese varietals, these port-style wines are like nothing you've ever tasted. Decadent, but not over-the-top sweet. Refined, but in no way pretentious or stuffy. In households across America, Two Horse Vineyard dessert wines have become an extraordinary holiday tradition. Kind of like the exclamation point at the end of a perfect meal. If you've not yet experienced the astonishing Two Horse Wines, get yours online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. What's the best way to make your holiday memorable? Well, Two Horse, of course. Purchase and shipping subject to state and local regulations. Please see mmorganics.com for more information. And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. I wish they all could be California. I wish they all could be California. I wish they all could be California. And we are back with Grape Encounters Radio, and I'm taking a trip back in a time machine because I spent a good portion of my life in the idyllic community of Malibu, California. Everybody knows Malibu. You could be from any place on this planet and you know Malibu. It's certainly one of the most filmed communities that exists any place in the world. But beyond that, it is known for being the home of countless stars and especially people who really don't like the Malibu feathers ruffled. They like to keep things kind of the way that they are. But there are a number of vineyards that have been planted in the Malibu area. I wish that had been the case when I was a student because I know what I would have done my internship in. I wouldn't be on the radio now. I would have been interning in wine and <laughs> that's what I'd be doing. Anyway, talking to Elliot Dolan of Dolan estate. And Elliot, before we talk any more about wine, let's talk about music because you were a big time music guy. You played with some big names. In another lifetime, indeed. That's the same lifetime. So uh, let's do a little name dropping here. Well, you know, I grew up in the East Coast, New York metropolitan area, and I started out playing, you know, the Jersey Shore and the Manhattan Club scene and the Catskill Mountains. And when I was in New York, I played uh, at one point in time, the very, very early itineration of uh, Manhattan Transfer. Wow. And when I was down at the Jersey Shore, I was in that whole Springsteen scene, you know, Asbury Park, uh, the clubs, Mrs. J's and all these famous places before he recorded his first album. And I spent time living in Central Jersey. I wanted to move back up closer to the New York area. And at that time, he was looking for a bass player, but I declined the opportunity to audition for him. So <laughs> oh, no, you're the Pete Best of the E Street Band. Maybe, although I didn't get to play with them, but I'm very happy with the way everything turned out in the end. So 
Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You could have been the bass player for Bruce Springsteen, okay? Well, now maybe you can make wine for him instead. So what were yeah, some... What yeah, are some, you never know. Who are some you of the people, know. though, that you've played with? You've played with Johnny Cash. You've played with Willie Nelson, I think. What happened was I was living on the East Coast, but I sort of worked my way west. I moved to Nashville. Gosh, I guess it was the mid-70s or so, early 70s. And while I wasn't a huge fan of country music, there was a burgeoning R&B scene, so I thought. Rhythm and blues, you know, all the great hit makers from Memphis had moved to Nashville after Martin Luther King was assassinated. Tensions were running high, so... I really wanted to, you know, get into that aspect of music there, but I wound up playing in country music, and I worked with a number of great artists. Brenda Lee, Little Miss Dynamite, and Ray Price, who was unfortunately just passed away this past year. Yeah. And when I worked with Ray, we, we toured a lot with Willie Nelson. In fact, they had just done an album together. In fact, Willie Nelson's last official Fourth of July picnic, when he had his uh, Pendernelli's Country Club, that was a great event. And then uh, I began working as a staff musician for a record producer by the name of Jack Clement, who was one of those names behind the scenes that uh, you don't hear of every day, but he actually was an engineer for Sam Phillips at Sun Records in Memphis during the Elvis days. And he wrote songs for Johnny Cash, produced Johnny Cash, discovered Charlie Pride, John Pride. So my time at Jack Clements was very interesting. I got to meet and play with a number of really, really great and talented musicians. That must have been a very interesting time. Did you get to play the Ryman Auditorium? You know, I never did, unfortunately. Played at Carnegie Hall, but not the Ryman. Uh, I guess Carnegie Hall will do. <laughs> okay. When I played at Carnegie Hall, I was working with an artist by the name of Donna Fargo. Yeah, and, of course. Uh, and uh, I just thought it was ironic. I made it to Carnegie Hall, but it was playing country music. <laughs> All right. So why is it? Because we talk about the connection between music and wine a lot, but it's no coincidence that an awful lot of people who come from the music world wind up in the wine world. I have my theories about that, but do you have any of your own? Well, there's a relationship between mathematics and music, even though you wouldn't normally think that's the case. But, you know, it's a combination of science and art. And I think the same thing holds true with winemaking. There's an element of science. And obviously, you know, it's a very creative, artistic endeavor at the same time. I think the combination of both sides of the brain come together in in a certain way that just attracts people that are interested in both. A good friend of mine, I'm sure you're familiar with Jeff Morgan from Covenant Wines. Yes. And Jeff, also from the East Coast, and he started out as a journalist. He moved out to work for the Wine Spectator. He was one of their top review journalists. But prior to that, he was actually a saxophone player and was a band leader at the casino in Monaco, of all places. Been there. Yeah. So, and then he ultimately went on to produce wine. He makes the, the preeminent producer of kosher wines in the United States. See, isn't that cool? He and I have that in common. We both played the Monaco Casino. You did? Yeah, but I was just playing cards. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I left a few things behind. (laughs) So you wind up in Malibu. Why did you get into the wine business? And how many other people were taking the wine plunge in Malibu at the time that you were? Well, there were a number that preceded me. We would call them pioneers to a certain extent. There's a restaurateur by the name of Michael McCarty. Yes, Michael's Restaurant, 3rd Street in Santa Monica. I know. Exactly. And then in Manhattan as well. And uh, he planted his vineyard, I think, in the mid-80s, which was what we call the first of the modern-day vineyards. But he was followed by the Semler family. Planted their large vineyard, George Rosenthal. You know, they were the big guys. And then there were some other pioneers, a friend of mine named Jim Palmer that planted a vineyard. Uh, I guess by the time I jumped in, I'm sure there was a dozen or close to it. Wow. And then Emilio Estevez, right, has a vineyard there as well, doesn't he? Well, Emilio and Sonia had a vineyard on Point Doom. And they have a label called Casa Dumets. And now they've since become very active up on the Central Coast. Definitely. So, you know, very quickly in the time that we have remaining, I have two glasses of wine in front of me. One of them is a Pinot. Grapes not coming from Malibu, but coming from the Central Coast. 
quite delicious, but I really am taken aback by the Chardonnay, which is a Malibu-grown grape. Tell me about that wine. It seems that Chardonnay apparently does very well up in the Malibu foothills. Let's talk about that. Well, it does. I was fortunate in that I was able to draw upon the experience of several of my neighbors that have vineyards. There's five or six of us in the little section of Malibu where we are located. And I was fortunate enough to uh, engage a local wine consultant who had been active in managing several of those vineyards. So, you know, he advised me that probably the greatest chance we had at producing excellent fruit would be with Chardonnay versus trying to experiment with any of the red varietals or Pinot Noir. So we had a beautiful south-facing slope on our property, great volcanic soils, excellent drainage, and cool climate. We planted our vineyard in 2006. So we didn't actually produce wine with fruit that we harvested until 2009, which was our maiden vintage. Yeah. And we had no idea what we were going to wind up with, but we were very, very pleased with the results we got. Yeah, darn good job. Hey, we just got literally seconds left, but what kind of varietals would you say are growing the best in Malibu? And is it true that the Malibu wines do have undertones of suntan lotion? <laughs> I don't know about suntan lotion, but certainly uh, you can detect the ocean breeze in there. Sea, sea salt and suntan lotion. There you go. Well, with varietals, we have a pretty good uh, array. I mean, considering the difference in elevations and microclimates, close to the coast here, we're doing well with our Chardonnay. But up, you know, around 2,000 feet at Rosenthal, for instance, they're doing Cabernet and Merlot and the Bordeaux varietals. Totally different climate. So we have, you know, a good variety of grape varietals that can do well here. All right. So are you, Elliot Dolan, prepared to take the Grape Encounters micro? phones on a Malibu wine junket? Absolutely. All right. You'll be our guide, our eyes and ears and sommelier? Absolutely. All right. Awesome. All right. Sounds great. I wish we could talk to you more. We unfortunately have to move on down the road here at this point, but thanks for a little trip down memory lane. I really am looking forward to coming out there. It's been on my to-do list for a really long time. We will have to make that happen. So I will be in touch with you in the new year. We will set that up and we will definitely do that little junket. I look forward to it. All right. Sounds good. Elliot Dolan, he is the founder of Dolan Estate, one of somewhere around 50 people that are growing grapes and making wine in idyllic Malibu, California, a storyland community that I think most everybody is familiar with. But anyway, Malibu, California is something to keep on the radar because right now I'm sipping a delicious Chardonnay that Elliot has made, really delicious, and I've had some other really good wines from Malibu, so keep it on your radar. And, you know, if you're looking for something interesting that you've not tasted before, then maybe give Malibu a a try. We're going to be back with more Grape Encounters after this. But, Elliot, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Living in and broadcasting from one of the world's finest wine regions makes it virtually impossible not to make frequent references to the multitude of amazing things going on here on the central coast of California. Grape Encounters Radio has built one of the world's most unique wine bars so that you can have the opportunity to come to the city of Atascadero and enjoy great wines and equally good conversation with me and other visitors. Best of all, my favorite hotel in the area is literally right across the street the historic Carlton Hotel with accommodations that are both beautiful and affordable. The Carlton Hotel takes you back to a glorious time in California history. And now that the wine industry has ushered in yet another exciting new chapter here on the Central Coast, you can experience the best of then and now. Book your accommodations at the lovingly restored Carlton Hotel in Atascadero. Then, let me help you plan daily excursions that will create a lifetime of unforgettable memories. You'll find a link to the Carlton Hotel at GrapeEncounters.com. 
Brave Encounters Radio is always on the lookout for great story ideas, even if they're completely and totally off the wall. So here's the deal. Share your story ideas with me or send a question you'd like to hear answered on the show. If I use your question or suggestion, I'll send you a special gift. I want to know what you want to know. You can contact me on the Grape Encounters Radio group page on Facebook or email david at grapeencountersradio.com. If you've got something for me, I've got something for you. The hottest gift for wine enthusiasts is the next generation of the most amazing wine accessory ever created. Whether it's a gift for the wine lover in your life or a reward for yourself, nothing can improve wine enjoyment like the astounding Corvin Model 2, which allows wine to be poured from an unopened bottle. Find out why the Corvin Model 2 is so revolutionary at GrapeEncounters.com. We have the new Corvins in stock at Grape Like the Fruit, Encounters Like CloseEncounters.com. And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. I'm gonna get you on a slow boat to China All to myself alone And we are back with Grape Encounters Radio. And now moving on to a subject that I think you will find very fascinating. There are many times that we have gone out to China and talked to you about what's going on in the wine world of China. And of course, if anybody has seen the Red Invasion, then you definitely know that there's some very, very strange things going on in the world of China and wine consumption, not the least of which is a whole lot of counterfeiting going on and a whole lot of coveting and hoarding of wine. Well, there's a book out called Thirsty Dragon, written by Suzanne Mustasich. And Suzanne is a uh, contributing editor to Wine Spectator magazine, also a screenwriter and producer as well. And Suzanne, welcome to Grape Encounters. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Now, I've got you in New York, right? But you don't actually live in the United States. You're a Bordeaux girl. I am Bordeaux girl. I've been there for 15 years now. What in the world took you out there? Family. I met a Frenchman, actually, is how I ended up there, which is probably the best way to end up in Bordeaux. <laughs> and I've always been a writer, whether I was working in, in television or film. And I decided, what else was I going to do but write about Bordeaux? That was, you know, it was instinctively I wanted to tell stories. And eventually I started working as a, as a journalist and, and now an author. Had you had a background in wine? I mean, what was your wine connection when you went there? Or did you have one? Or did you develop it while you were there? Well, my parents always had wine. So I did grow up with a wine culture. We always had wine at dinner. They would take me to wineries, you know, when I was a kid. I grew up in Washington State. So I grew up appreciating wine. And then I lived in Los Angeles for over a decade. And there's great wine culture in Los Angeles. It was just part of the lifestyle in California. But when I went to Bordeaux, I found myself for the first time in a wine region, really in in the world of, of wine. And that was a fascinating experience. So tell me this, if you were living in Washington and living in California, and of course, in California, there are certainly three or four or even five distinctive wine regions. What is the difference between a wine region in America and a wine region like Bordeaux? Well, two things. I mean, I really know Bordeaux the best. It's hard for me. I've never lived in a wine region in America, so it's hard for me to say. But Bordeaux obviously has a couple thousand years of history in wine. So it's, can I say, wine is part of every fashion 
facet of life there. It's the history, it's the politics, it's the economy, families, it's social structure. Wine permeates everything. I, I don't know that we have that yet in America. Probably in four or five hundred years, you know, we'll have that in our own wine regions. But that's a, that's a major difference. So really full immersion versus you know, being a part of the economy, I guess. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's what's really just for me as a writer, too, is I found myself fully immersed in this wine culture, which was so different from anything I had known before. Plus, Bordeaux is is unique. You know, it has a historical merchant culture and merchant class, really. And the families are all sort of related to each other. The chateau owners and the wine merchants were called negociants and the brokers were called courtiers. It's a whole social structure. And so that was just, as a writer, that was fascinating for me. So this is the stuff of great stories. You know, I... I had a conversation, I think it was about a year ago, and you may know her, uh, Jana Kravitz-Pliseno. Do you know? Yes, of course. Anyway, a good friend of our show, and one of the things that she pointed out to me was the fact that while the rest of the world may see Bordeaux as being a place dominated by the big chateaus, that the lion's share of the wine that is made in Bordeaux is really coming from families and small producers and very humble people. Is that the same impression that you have? Yeah, I would say there's what I think there's between seven and 8,000 chateaus now, estates now. And they've been reducing the numbers. But only six, fewer than 6% are those sort of big, glamorous, classified growth estates. So that will, I mean, of production, I'm talking about volume. So just a tiny percentage are the really famous, the kind of the, the stars, really, the, the celebrity wine estates. It's just a tiny portion. Hundreds are owned by what I would call more, yeah, regular, regular people. I don't really associate the word humble and with French. You know, I'm, that's <laughs> yeah, what yeah. my, I was hesitating over the word humble. I think they're very proud of their estates. And some are just growers and they sell, you know, they, they might ferment and then they sell it as bulk. There's a whole strategy at that level too. But then the middle, I think the core, for me, the heart of Bordeaux are the family-owned estates who bottle their own wine and sell it for a very affordable price. All right. So let's uh, jump on over to the topic of the relationship between the Chinese and Bordeaux. First of all, why Bordeaux? I mean, I certainly understand that Bordeaux, in terms of prestige, is probably at the very top of the list where wine is concerned. But there are certainly lots and lots of other places on this planet that make amazing amazing wines, is it that China has a predisposition to go for the very best, or is there some other connection between China and Bordeaux that some of us are missing? Yeah, yeah, no, there is another connection. And it was the merchant culture that I had talked about. Bordeaux has been exporting its wine for hundreds of years, and there's a certain way, a separate structure for selling the wines. So chateau owners, the estate owners making the wine, but they don't sell it. They sell it to uh, a negociant, a wine shipper, mm-hmm. a wholesale wine merchant. And it's the those people who for hundreds of years have been shipping it all over the world. And there's over 300 of them and they might work in over 100 countries. So that kind of distribution is unique in the wine world. And it's funny, we talk about globalization. I always think about Bordeaux. I think, wait a minute. Okay, globalization, I know we're kind of afraid of it. It's making everything sort of the same. Everywhere you go shopping, any country, you know, there's a gap or there's a coast of coffee or something. But Bordeaux has been a global product for centuries and it's what's maintained these family-owned estates. 
their products are shipped all over the world because of these merchants. And that's how they got into China. So they've been trying to sell to China since the late 1700s. I mean, if you look at historical you know, newspapers or customs studies they were doing at the time to sell to China, everybody wanted to sell to China, it's just like today. China was just the land of promise, thinking of all those people, if we could just get them to buy our goods. Well, it was the same with wine. And the, the Bordeaux wine merchants were not always French. They might be Scandinavian, they might be English, they might be Dutch, they're all different nationalities. They're trying to sell wine over there. They didn't get very far, honestly. They got as far as the treaty ports. And it's mainly the English merchants who were taking the wine in there. Everything dries up in 49 with the Communist Revolution. 79, 78, 79, China opens up. And Bordeaux wine was right there as China was opening up. And that is the connection. Bordeaux has been paving the way for this market for decades. So they've, not they've literally been, they've been standing outside the, side the gate waiting to get in. Oh, absolutely. Any way they can. They get it into diplomatic missions. They get it into five-star hotels. And that's where those stars of Bordeaux really count because they have the 1855 classification, which is used for marketing in Bordeaux. It, it is the envy of every wine region around the world when it comes to marketing. So what they do is they go in there, these merchants, and they say, this is a new wine market. They don't drink wine. They've never thought of buying wine. And you got to sell them not only wine, but the most expensive wine. And that takes a certain amount of, of nerve, I think, and and courage to go into a difficult new market like that. And they say, well, listen, we've got it for you. Here are the very best, these historical estates. And they have this incredible history and make these uh, amazing wines that are respected by wealthy people all over the world. So for this new market, it's perfect. They know what to buy. It's easy for them. Here's the part that I don't understand. I can understand now with China being the economic power that they are today, but I don't understand at a time when China was not in the condition that they are, the Bordeaux winemakers, the winemaking world in general, seeing China as such an oyster to pluck because, you know, because the money, because the money, the money wasn't there. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but that was, that is the essence of Bordeaux is commerce. Okay, it's commerce. And the job of a wine merchant, and it's in their blood, it doesn't matter if they were born into it or not, they go into it because they really want to open up a new market. That's the job of a wine merchant. And like right now, they're working on Angola, India, Brazil. They're always looking at new markets. So when they went into China, the average annual income was about $180 a year. So there, there was no one in China who could afford this wine. They knew that. But they did believe that China, once it opened up, would develop economically. No one thought it would go this fast. Of course, even the Chinese, I don't think, thought it would grow this fast. But they didn't know there would be five-star hotels. And expats in five-star hotels looking for joint ventures with the Chinese like to drink Bordeaux wine. So that's where they started. And they had this firm belief, which frankly is proven time and time again. It was proven in America as well, that where there is wealth... There is a desire for luxury and symbols of success and luxury. And that is what the Bordeaux classified growth represent. Wow. And that, and once they've got those wines into the market, they sell the millions and millions of other bottles right behind. So they're using those luxury wines to pave the way for all the, the six to 700 million bottles they have to sell every year. Certainly seems like the path of greatest resistance. But let's yeah. continue this discussion. I'm going to have to take a quick break here, Suzanne. Can you stay with me for a few more minutes? 
Sure, absolutely. Okay, awesome. We're talking to Suzanne Mustasich. She is the author of Thirsty Dragon, China's Lust for Bordeaux and the Threat to the World's Best Wines. That part of the statement I think I want to talk about next, that threat. As we continue with Grape Encounters Radio, don't go anyplace. Connecting winemakers, wine lovers, wine adventures, and all things wine from around the globe. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of San Luis Obispo County, California. I'm gonna get you on a slow boat to China, all to myself guilty as sin. We open a costly bottle of wine and recork it with the intent of drinking the rest later. But later comes and goes, and that delicious wine also goes. South, that is. The Coravin is the most reliable way to enjoy your wine without any concern about the unconsumed wine going bad. And while the Coravin wine access system costs a bit more than other preservation systems, it does something they don't. It works perfectly. The Coravin is a beautifully engineered handheld device that gives you access to your wine through a small needle that you gently push straight through the cork. Inert argon gas is injected into the bottle, while as little or as much of the wine that you want flows right into your glass. The argon gas keeps your wine so safe, it's as though you never opened the bottle. Want to learn more? Simply click the Coravin link at GrapeEncounters.com. A wine is a terrible thing to waste. Get your Coravin at GrapeEncounters.com. Every year at this time, more and more people discover the amazing Portuguese dessert wines meticulously handcrafted by Manzanita Manor. They're called Two Horse because these incomparable wines are made from grapes grown in a remote vineyard that's actually plowed by real horses, not simply horsepower. Made from the finest Portuguese varietals, these port-style wines are like nothing you've ever tasted. Decadent, but not over-the-top sweet. Refined, but in no way pretentious or stuffy. In households across America, two-horse vineyard dessert wines have become an extraordinary holiday tradition. Kind of like the exclamation point at the end of a perfect meal. If you've not yet experienced the astonishing two-horse wines, get yours online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. What's the best way to make your holiday memorable? Well, to horse, of course. There's only so much wine you can drink. And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. Grape Encounters Radio and talking to Suzanne Mustasich. She is the author of Thirsty Dragon, China's Lust for Bordeaux and the Threat to the World's Best Wine and comes to us from Bordeaux, as a matter of fact. Definitely no stranger to the region, the lifestyle, and obviously the interest that the Chinese have in those wines. Suzanne, do you see a lot of visitors from China in Bordeaux? Are they as visible as they are interested in the wines? As 
very visible. Remember, Bordeaux is a small city of about 230,000. And then the outline areas maybe up to 800,000. So it's small. Any new group that arrives, certainly if they're numerous and it arrives quickly, then it's very noticeable. So yes, the Chinese are very noticeable. A few years ago, we didn't really have any Chinese. And now we've got Chinese tour groups. We've got Chinese students. We have Chinese traders. We have Chinese interns. We have Chinese, just about Chinese everything now. All right, let's talk about the threat to the world's best wines. Why a threat? Well, on multiple levels here. On one hand, it was a lot of speculation, just sort of very volatile, crazy speculation, not only from the Chinese who were new to wine, who saw this as a quick profit, but also people speculating on the Chinese market. And it basically priced Bordeaux's wines, the top wines, out of their other traditional markets, which they've been working in for decades. So it doesn't really make sense to give up on a market like America, for instance, which is the largest wine market in the world, and a stable market for something as volatile and difficult as China. But that is what happened. They also, the Chinese have different business practices. You know, they believe in getting to the source of the product as quickly as possible. They want to eliminate any middlemen. And Bordeaux is based on middlemen. There's negotiants, there's the brokers and negotiants. The threat also came from the Chinese business practices, one of which is to eliminate all of the intermediaries. And Bordeaux is layers of intermediaries, which supports its social and economic structure. So we're talking about jobs as well. They also were trying to monopolize wines and Bordeaux's distribution is just the opposite of that. You might have 50, 60 merchants with just a couple cases of Lafitte, for instance, but that means that wine gets all over the world to little wine shops and restaurants all over the world. And that's part of the reason Bordeaux wines are so well known. It's their reputation and it maintains different markets. One market falls away, you can you can hedge your bets. So this is the stability of Bordeaux's distribution as well at, at stake. But the biggest threat, honestly, that's ensuing today is the fakes and brand squatting, the, the attacks on intellectual property. That's enormous. All right. Before we get into that, though, I do want to ask a question that is probably going to irritate some people, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is the obsession with Bordeaux wines on the part of Chinese wine consumers about the quality of the wine, or is it about the prestige of the wine? And I know probably the obvious answer is both, but I remember sitting and watching in horror the movie Red Obsession, which presented a number of interviews from collectors in China uh, talking about the fact that they would probably never drink most of the wines that were in their massive cellars and that it really wasn't about that. What's your impression about it? Because that to me is the saddest part of all of this is this massive amount of wine that's sitting in cellars that may never touch the lips of somebody who really, truly appreciates that wine. Yeah, no, it's about brand. It's really about brand. The Chinese are, it's not just wine, the Chinese are very attached to brands. That's very important to them. But that's true in a lot of new consumer societies. You know, they need guidance. The Chinese are particularly attached to brands. So Bordeaux is a brand to them. And for them, it's an expensive brand. Even though we sell millions of bottles of a very inexpensive wine, great quality, the impression is that it's this is an expensive luxury brand. And luxury brands are do fantastically in the Chinese economy. And yep. Chinese consumers want those. They want a symbol of sophistication. They want a symbol that says, I've succeeded. I'm middle class. 
It's a symbol of luxury that they can afford. So has anybody been doing any blind studies in China to test the perception of Bordeaux wines versus California wines versus wines from Spain and Italy or wherever? Has there been much of that going on? Because I'd be very Not, interested, no, no, I'd be very interested what's to find actually out. actually is, is, is that the Chinese palate, you might say, is expanding. They're, it's very much like American, that they're always curious about new wines, new regions. And now that Chinese are starting to travel, because remember a few years ago, it was very difficult for a Chinese person to get a, a visa to travel. Now they visit wine regions and they or they go to restaurants. They see all these different wine regions they've never even heard of. And now they're drinking those wines. It, particularly, they're ordering by the internet now, and it tends to be inexpensive wines, and they might try a couple different wines a month. So there's this incredible curiosity for new wines. It doesn't mean that Bordeaux is suddenly, they've abandoned Bordeaux, but Bordeaux will necessarily have a smaller share of the imported wine market as it expands because the Chinese, they want to try new things. Actually, they're sort of the ideal wine consumers because they're not really stuck on any one region, I don't think. All right, so I think they're always looking for something new. There are those things that they drink versus those things that they covet. Well, there's that. Okay, the wines they're drinking are inexpensive wines. The big issue for Bordeaux is there's all this wine that is uncorked in China, all these very expensive wines collected, stored, sometimes not stored in the best conditions, sitting there in the market uncorked. So you think about when China opened up, they were selling 4,000 bottles to China. Now they sell 55 million a year. The height, it was near 72 million. Wow. And a lot of that is classified growth. Wow. So think about that. If it's not un- uncorked, if people aren't drinking it, it's just sitting there. That's not a good thing. We only have a few minutes left, but let's talk about counterfeit and what the implications of that are. What is the damage that that's doing and how do we stop it? I know there's a lot of really interesting new technology that's been incorporated into wine bottling to try to stop some of the counterfeiting. Are we winning this battle? No, we're not winning the battle. I'm sorry to say. There was just a French study, a report that was released that found that for every bottle of real French wine, there was a bottle of fake French wine in China. And that was true of other regions as well. They're not only attacking French wine. And counterfeiting is at an industrial level in China. And And where is the wine coming from? What's going into the bottle? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) Sometimes it's just cheap, cheap, bulk wine where they can get it the cheapest. Might be Chile, might be be another country, might be Australia. Uh. Whichever region has a lot of unsold bulk wines where they buy it. Or they use Chinese wine. They blend it together. Together. That's the best case scenario. And no one's getting hurt. It's consumer fraud, but no one's getting hurt. And it's an attack, obviously, on intellectual property. So how do you win the battle? You make it as difficult as possible to counterfeit the product. There's no doubt about the fact that the Chinese are, you know, probably better than anybody on the planet right now at creating anything anybody could want fast, cheap, and generally pretty well done. So yeah. we're talking to you on an iPhone made in China, after all. <laughs> so we're definitely going to keep our finger on the pulse of this story, though. The book is Thirsty Dragon. The author, Suzanne Mustasich, she is living in Bordeaux, been there for about, what you said, 15 years now. And yeah, about 15 years. Covering the wine scene there for many, including Wine Spectator. And anyway, we so appreciate you being on. Such an interesting story. Where's the book available to those who might want it? The it's usual available places? on all, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Those are the easiest. And Powell's, the indie books online. Pretty much just Google it. All right, Suzanne, I really appreciate it. Thanks for being on with us. And hey, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters. We will be back here same time, same channel next week. So we look forward to talking to you then. 